I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and financial advisor Stephen Mellon. His new book is Killer Graces, My Path from Pain to Power and Breakthrough Living. In his late 30s, Steve Mellon thought he had it all, a successful career in finance, a house on the hill, a lovely and accomplished wife, a beautiful newborn daughter, and a zest for life and travel. He was unstoppable. Until a diagnosis of stage 3B stomach cancer brought it all to a screeching halt. Facing the hard truth that he would live the rest of his life without a stomach and only parts of other important organs, Steve battled his demons and the fact that he only had 15% chance of survival. His story is one of both weakness and strength as Steve navigates a world of pain, drugs, alcohol, marital problems, and anxiety, all rooted in his earliest days as a child of adoption, and reveals the fact that it took a life-threatening illness to bring these issues to light so the true healing process could begin. Welcome to the show, Steve. Oh, thank you for having me. Good morning. Great to have you here. As I said before the show, I read the whole book in its entirety. Couldn't put it down, actually. Uh, you know, the first, what, the first page you were, let's start with the very beginning when you were in China. Yeah. And I think that was the first chapter, wasn't Climbing the Great Wall, which I, have cl- I didn't climb the whole way either, even though I didn't, ha- well, I didn't have cancer, but still I couldn't breathe climbing up that thing. So, okay, let's start with that, that, that scenario. That that was uh, one of these amazing experiences that I that I the once in a lifetime thing I got uh, got to do and you know when you get there and you see the wall and you're with this group and and we're all like minded and excited and young professionals uh, I was thinking that I'm just going to walk right up to the top and lots of I mean it's a big big wall with lots of steps and uh, I just got a quarter of the way through up and everyone was uh, and I and I just could not make it. I, my energy level was so low, and I, and I just was wondering why. And I, and I thought maybe it's because I was jet-lagged from flying, flying from uh, San Francisco over there the day before. And uh, so I just stopped. I stopped at this turret, and I said, and my wife at the time just said, are you okay? And I said, ah, I think I'm just tired or hungover from the flight or whatever it was because you know, we had drinks on the flight on the way over. And, uh, and, and you were 38 I, years old, I, right? We want to, you know... Yes, up. yeah, I was yeah. 37 really at the t- at that time. Uh, diagnosed really at 38, but 37 was that first moment. That was probably the initial time when the symptoms of stomach cancer were showing its head. And uh, yeah, so I just stayed back and I let everyone else go up, and I just pretended to take pictures and you know sit up there and and just let them go up to the top, and I well they went up and back. And. So after that, though, I guess you then, okay, so they went up and back and you, what, dismissed the symptoms or you, you know, you, uh, what happened? I mean, yeah, not at all. I didn't dismiss it. I, I, I I got back uh, home after the trip and I I thought maybe I should go see the doctor because it just doesn't seem right. Uh, I'm just more tired than anyone else was around me. And I, and after a week, I said something, something's off. So I went back and the doctor said, well, uh, you've got a pain in your in your upper uh, lower esophagus, upper stomach as well, which uh, had just developed fairly recently. And he said, 
pro- you're 37, you've got a, a one-year-old baby in the house, you've got a new job that you switched over to after 15 years at the same company, you're doing all sorts of stuff, exciting, wild stuff, and I think it's anxiety or stress. So they, uh, they thought that it was just uh, reflux and they were going to treat it with uh, protonics. So that was my first visit to the doctor for this particular issue. And then that happened three or four months later. I went back again. They checked for an ulcer. There was no ulcer. And that pain was still there. And the weakness was still there. And then I went back again finally to the, to the ER about eight or nine months later because it was too early to go into the doctor. And that's when the whole everything just opened up and I, they discovered that it was something much worse. When they discovered that at you know stage stage three, as you said in the book, it wasn't stage four, so you felt a little better. I'm not sure what the difference between stage three B and stage four is, but um, it. I wondered, like they waited so long to diagnose you, right? You're talking six, eight, nine months from the time you had those symptoms, say the first symptoms in China, um, and attributing your pain and how you were feeling to stress. Um, why do you, I mean, I'm curious as to why you, why that was, you know, it was well, such a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that the, the challenge that we face is that a lot of people in their, let's just say late twenties or early thirties, mid thirties, upper thirties, whatever it may be, we start experiencing a lot of stress and a lot of physical issues uh, that might be different than we did when we were carefree and young and didn't have any responsibility. So the world's pressures start to add on and people have, you know, foods that they eat, they have reflux. I mean, reflux is a huge common, common issue. A little bit of pain, acid in your, in your belly, uh, exhaustion, you're tired. So if they, the doctors, and I understand this, if the doctors were to send everyone in who came in complaining about an upset stomach or a little pain in them or being a bit tired when they've got full-time job, child, you know, new wife and, and all sorts of things going, then trying to have fun in life, they'd be scanning everyone because everyone's got something, anxiety, stress, you know, who knows, what, whatever it is, everyone's stressed out there for some form or the other. So I think that they tend not to just go and scan everyone because you don't want to give radiation to everyone. And so, so I didn't get to the point where they did a scan and then they ended up doing an endoscopy and then they ended up, you know, seeing it firsthand with their eyeballs when they did the endoscopy. But I think that's why at 37, they didn't think that that would be an issue. They thought it was just normal stress in, in my life. All right, and at that point, you want to go to the best place to get that you had your diagnosis to get the treatment, right? So, uh, yes. As, as I remember, you, what your father had gone to Stanford. You didn't get into Stanford, but now you were going to go to Stanford Medical uh, to get. <laughs> that's, that's one my, way of getting that's into my Stanford. Side as you joke, say. you know, it's like I wanted to go to Stanford. My father, yeah. my uncle, everyone went to Stanford, and I couldn't get into Stanford. My grades weren't weren't good. I blame it on being adopted, and so I didn't have the genes that my dad did. So, right, so I didn't have the Stanford genes. So I ended up going to school in San Diego, but um, uh, which was no Stanford, but it was still fun. But I joke that, oh, I got, I'm getting into Stanford now. Well, it's Stanford Medical through the hospital, not Stanford University. <laughs> so it's my lighthearted way of dealing with these situations as well as I can because it was all extremely stressful. Yeah, well, that's your attitude, obviously, and that that pervades the whole book. I mean, we t- what did I say? Your strengths and your weaknesses. Let's talk about some of the strengths and the weaknesses both. But yes. I mean, when you're told that you, I don't know if they actually told you that, but then you, you know, you can Google all of this whenever you when get your diagnosis. A 15% chance of survival. What yes. went through your head then? 
Well, I didn't find that out until after. Uh, that's uh, I think back in, so this is coming on 13 years right now. And back then, I, there were not the Facebook groups, uh, Instagram, or the the, the found, found cancer, stomach cancer foundations. I didn't really have anywhere to go. And so I, and I could have just searched up odds of survival or, uh, or odds of dying, but I chose not to do that because I just, I didn't think at the time that I was necessarily going to die. When I got that first diagnosis the first day, they even said that it was, uh, they think it might even be pancreatic cancer. And I had no idea what pancreatic or stomach cancer really meant at the time when I was in the hospital on that one day, because it was just, it blindsided me. And I just found out that, you know, pancreatic cancer later on, I found out because, Patrick Swayze was in the hospital the same time that I was at Stanford, and he was being treated for pancreatic cancer. And then he ended up dying nine months later, uh, or sort of, yeah, some, somewhere around there. And I re- found out that pancreatic cancer was really, really bad, and mine was just really bad. So, uh, so it, uh, I didn't look at the odds of all that until you know, a couple of years later when I just looked to see that the survival rates are very low. And thankfully, it was not pancreatic cancer uh, because, uh, you know, they thought it was in the pancreas, but they, so they ended up only taking out half of my pancreas and not the full pancreas uh, because it was swollen. And, but it was actually just lymph nodes behind that were, that were making it a little bit bigger, so they, they cut half of it out. I didn't know you could live without half a pancreas and, or even without a full stomach or without a spleen. I didn't even know what the spleen does. Yeah, I know they take out your spleen. <laughs> that they do take out your spleen a lot. I know that, but uh, yes, that you don't need a spleen. But as you no. found out, you don't need a lot of your organs, or you, or you only need half of your organs. Right. Um, I had my gallbladder last year taken out for an emergency procedure, so you know that can be taken out too. I got a brain and a heart that's still going, but you know, there's they took out a lot of parts out of there. I guess what amazes me is your energy and your ability to just, you know, plow through all of this. And yes, and then you developed a drug, uh, I want to talk about that, an yeah. opioid problem as a result of taking too many painkillers, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things. You have that kind of a, what I call it, a type A personality. Um, I think that's part of it. Or, or And also as a, you know, I'm a social worker, uh, you're a social worker with a microphone. So I'm, as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking kind of an addictive personality. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had I, I went to a therapist for seventeen years, the same therapist, and she saw the whole thing from the beginning to the end. And it all started with an an anxiety attack when I was twenty nine uh, years old. And then I stuck with her, and she saw the whole thing. And so she, I just heard, I stopped going to her a few years ago. She she found my book, and she reached, she goes, "Your story is incredible, Steve. I'm so happy for you." Like, so my therapist, of seventeen years who knows everything, is uh, you know, is just saying. And I would hear from her, and I would hear what my issues may or may not be, and whether or not I had these addictive issues. But they sure developed over time because of the the hits that kept on coming. And uh, at first, my social interaction, drinking, whatever, was not considered in her part, you know, very addictive. And it was not until after the surgery and after the pain med situation kind of changed my wiring, and then I started to really ramp up my uh, self-medicating, that she, she started to get worried about me. She started to tell me that I'm just, I don't know if you're going to show up to our next appointment, you know, and so for 15 years, she didn't, or 14 years, she didn't have a, necessarily a problem with the way I was living. It was just a fairly 
fun, outgoing, world traveling, take advantage of everything, very positive, half glass full. And then it turned into, God, I'm dying. Um, You know, I'm going to go out my way. That wasn't very good. Well, what about your wife, your first wife? Yes. Because this, your relationship with her obviously was changing as you're going through all of this, the diagnosis, the treatment, the drinking, all of that. I, I, don't, know how, I don't know how people make it through severe cancer diagnosis uh, in, in, because at first, you know, we are head down and it was, it was surgery within two weeks. And then I was in the hospital for a month because I sprung a leak and they had to code blue me. And, and then, so she's just watching me just barely hold on. So from a relationship standpoint, you know, you, you see your, your loved one just barely holding on. I, don't, I, it, I didn't realize what she went through until after I got clear-headed and got to see. But, uh, but yeah, the pressures it put, you know, put on the relationship because it, it extended a lot longer than I would, we would have liked. Because I had to do chemo and radiation, lost a lot of weight. I'm six foot one, and I got down to ninety five pounds. You know, and she's just watching this, so I'm now not feeling like a man or a father or a husband or anything. I'm just barely holding on. So then I get to the point where I'm taking the pills just to numb, and they doctors give me whatever I want, and I didn't really know about the addictive nature of the pills, but they sure get a hold of you. And the pills turn from you know five pills a day to 10 to 20 Oxycontins a day by the end of my little run. So then you find out, you know, my, my wife at the time was just, you know, you're, you survived the cancer and now you're killing yourself. You know, I can't, you know, I can't live with this. And I go, you don't understand the pain I'm in. I'm, I'm dying. I'm dying. You know, poor me. So it was, you know, it, it puts a lot of stress on everyone. But uh, well, getting off the pain meds was a wonderful thing, but then I thought I would just go back to my normal life of having a glass of wine and going out with friends, but that ended up being a substitute for, for the, the pain meds. So my wiring had changed in, in my head in, in that uh, early transformation. So I drank wine like it was medicating myself because I still thought I was dying and I didn't think I was going to have a wife or be able to see my daughter or any of those things. So what would be your advice to other people who are going through the same thing? I mean, people have different situations, different marital situations, kids, all of that, and different personalities. I I know that now, you know, in terms of you're talking, you were diagnosed, what, 15 years ago. So I think doctors and, and, and physicians are more aware, are definitely more concerned about getting hooked on painkillers. They've changed, I mean, the way in which they, um, deliver the painkillers to patients has changed over those years um, to, yeah, to prevent what, or to hopefully prevent what happened to you. Um, it's still, I mean, you, they still give you, uh, if you spend more than a certain amount of days a week in the hospital, there's going to be, there's like a 10% chance that you're going to be addicted. And the more, every day you go in, the, the odds go up. But I had, you know, I had a button that gave me all the allotted I wanted, then they gave me these prescriptions after. So back then, it was kind of give me whatever I want because they typically don't see patients like me survive after five years. So it's not, they don't see the, the after effects. But I, when I, last year, when my gallbladder got removed, I spent eight days in the hospital. So here we go again, pain meds. I was in intense pain, but the, the, the challenge for me to get just one-tenth the amount that I was getting before 
was harder. And so they were definitely more on it. But it still, when you give someone pills and it's give them the self-will, sometimes it's hard to take the exact prescribed amount. You might take it one extra one because you're feeling extra terrible that day. So that's a hard thing for people is to is when you're in pain and you really believe it, that, that okay, well, I'll just take one extra. It's so easy to take a pill. And uh, I fell into that, and it got a hold of me. And I realized again last year that it could get me again. And I, um, and I had a hard time. It wasn't easy getting through that little window. But I did. I got off of it again. Well, Steve, what about, okay, that fear of that you could get back onto, you know, painkillers again? Or, uh, what about the fear of that, you're gonna, that the cancer is coming back? How do you mitigate that fear? I would, I mean, assume like, you know, any little, maybe something that was, well, you had the, the gallbladder. Gallbladder, yeah. I went a little late on that, I think, I, because my gallbladder was gangrene and, and I probably should have gone in a little bit earlier. Uh, and so they had to do a major surgery instead of a little minor laparoscopic one. But, uh, yeah, that, that fear, that's the fear of dying is how great it is. But the fear, uh, the fear of the cancer coming back is a worse, the worst nightmare. So for the first five years when you're getting your scans, uh, you know, first you go every three months to get your CT scans, and then it's six months, and then it's one year. And then when you get to that five-year mark, they don't even care to see me anymore. They're like, all right, you're done. <laughs> so wait a second, what about... I'm, you know, what if they say if you want to go back, you can to get scanned, but we don't need to see you anymore. You're just like everyone else. But from that five year on, uh, I've had I've had the fear of it coming back. It's my biggest fear, but I don't worry about it every day anymore like I used to in those first five years. Because uh, because I see so many people, I mentor people, and I'm on a board of a cancer foundation, and too many people are uh, don't make it when they get. A recurrence, and so that's what I'm there to give people a lot of hope that they can actually get through that. And I think, you know, that positive mentality helps people get through a lot more than they think. Yeah. Oh, I think that's critical for people uh, um, to have that kind of mentoring or support or somebody who has been through it, like you have. And I want to talk about what it, Debbie's uh, Debbie's Dream Foundation. Yeah, I want to talk about that because that's really important. Because when you were diagnosed, as you say in the book. I mean, you turn to this one man that you, I forgot how you found him, but he was sort of your mentor or the only person, you, he was, what, three months ahead of you in terms of his exactly. diagnosis? Yeah. yeah, he was, he, yes, he was, we call him PJ in the book, and uh, he was a, he was the husband of a friend of a friend, so it was just how we, I got to him, and I don't know, and he just so happened to also be going to Stanford, the same hospital. He had my oncologist, and he had the surgeon that I, I had the option of choosing, and it was the number one surgeon at Stanford, so I was, I, I appeared to be in good hands, so I went to go visit him right before, and he had had his surgery three months before, one week after his 38th birthday. They wanted to have mine surgery on my 38th birthday. And I said, no, I don't want it because I could die. You know, it was like a small chance I could die on the table. So uh, they did it one week after my 38th birthday as well. So I was just a, a, an image of him three months behind. Same age, had children, married. And he made me feel comfortable that I could get through that first three months. So in my journey for the first couple of years, I knew as long as he was alive, I was going to be okay. But he had a recurrence, and then he died. And so that was where the tailspin for me in medicating really kicked in 
I, I went into a mini depression because I said, well, that's it. You know, he's done. I'm done. I had the same diagnosis, same surgery, everything. Uh, everything that I did was harder for me than it was for him. My, my uh, surgery was a month instead of a week. You know, I had two surgeries. I had, I had all sorts of problems. So I said, now I'm a goner. Uh, and so that's, that's where the self-medicating picked up. So that really, I think, points out the importance of having a lot, you know, not just one person who's supporting you or who's your mentor or who you're depending on emotionally, but you need something or one needs, let's say, Debbie's Dream Foundation where you yes. are. Yeah. So talk to us about that because there are a lot of people who um, obviously have had, actually, I was going to ask you, how many people are diagnosed with, do you know, do you have the statistics? Well, I, in believe, terms I believe there's uh, in the stomach. close to 30,000 a year in the U.S. Uh, diagnosed and there, uh, it's a, it, there's a high fatality rate for it, of course. Uh, it is getting better because people are noticing some of the signs earlier and able to go in and get it treated at lower stages. If you are, I mean, stage four is the worst, and there's very few. I, I know a, just a couple uh, survivors from that, and they're doing awesome. The ones that are they're doing awesome. They work with me on, uh, on uh, with Debbie's Dream Foundation. We, uh, so what, what it does there is... Uh, it, you know, I'm a mentor for them. I started as a mentor, and now I'm a board member. And, you know, we go out uh, to Capitol Hill and D.C. once a year for Advocacy Day, and I go and speak with Senate and Congress members with a small group of survivors and, and patients, mentors, and, and caregivers and to, to, to get the word out as well as to get more funds uh, for stomach cancer in general. But it really is – we – no matter what cancer it is, you need some sort of advocacy group to to give you to give you some hope that and find and match yourself up with survivors that are out there. And Debbie's Dream is the one that uh, I started out working with Gastric Cancer Foundation, which was the first one, which was P.J. Gallagher, the one who died. He started it, and I started with him, helped him, and then I moved on. Now I'm at Debbie's Dream Foundation, and you know, we all just need that hope and inspiration and a group to go to. I didn't have that. I had one person that I was relying on. And now I happen to be one of the longest survivors. And in my mind, I think I'm doing about as good, if not the best of anyone that I know in the entire country as far as, as, far as the recovery. So, How do you uh, feel physically on a day-to-day basis? Like what you can, because I know you talk a little bit about that in the book. I mean, if you had like half your parts removed, not literally, but almost, yeah. what, how do you digest your food? You know, on a, like, because you're a guy who's out there, uh, not just with your foundation, but I mean, all kinds of business, financial, yes. success, all of that. You have, how do you eat your lunches? Uh, yeah, your it's, it's the first like, question. Yeah. How do you digest your food? You know, how do you do that? Yeah. Well, it just goes straight into my mouth. I chew extra long and it goes to my small intestine and I absorb 99% of my calories in the small intestine, which is what we all do. The only thing I don't get is B12. So I have to give myself a shot once a month, right in the rear. And that's the only thing that I do differently than you and everyone else. But, but my energy level is always low. I don't absorb enough iron. So I, my energy is low, but for some reason I'm able to do a lot. I mean, I was fishing in Panama for a week last week. Um, I was in Kentucky for horse races at the Breeders' Cup three weeks ago. You know, I travel a lot and I do a lot and it, nothing's slowing me down. Um, I'm going to Lake Tahoe this weekend to ski. 
So, well, how are I'm, you doing this in the midst? Of, this is my like. This may we only have a couple, few minutes left, but how you how can you do this besides your energy level? Like in COVID, like you're doing more than anybody I've talked to. I know I've been on 22 airplanes in the past six months, uh, all over the place. Uh, how am I doing it? Well, I wear a mask. I uh, and I keep somewhat safe, but I, in my mind. If, I, if I'm staying at home and not doing anything and going out, I'm not living, and I've already come close to dying a few times. And so I need to take advantage of, I, like, sitting at home and doing nothing would be, me, very challenging. And I want everyone to respect their own comfort level on doing things. But I'll, I'll tell you, I've been COVID tested four times because, and recently because I, uh, I've had to go into, this, into a hospital three times lately because I... I've a, I have a side effect, I think, from the radiation that I got 12 years ago. My esophagus was tightening up, so I got to go in on Monday and have my esophagus stretched out for a third time in the next three months. So it never ends. It, it, it really doesn't, but that's why I'm, I'm out with my family. My kids are now 14. I'm remarried to my high school sweetheart first, and uh, life is really, really as good as it's ever been. So I'm not slowing down. Uh, yes, there's a lot of stuff in that's going on out there, but this has been one of the better years personally for me just because I've been able to live. You've made great, cho- well, now you're making great choices, good choices, healthy yeah. choices, I guess, we could, right? Yeah. And you're, yeah. And so a couple of minutes left, uh, web, give us a website. Well, I know we have uh, Steve Mellon. Dot com, yeah. right? That's your website. Yeah, so my, my oh. last name is, I'm the Swedish Mellon. I came from Minnesota, uh, M-E-L-E-N, but it's Steve Mellon, M-E-L-E-N, lots of E's in there, dot com. And that's where the book is at. It's also on Amazon. Uh, and, and it's coming out actually in uh, in an audio book. The audio book just got finished. I now have to figure out how to get it onto Amazon. But it's, uh, the, the website just talks a little bit about, has some pictures, paints a story of sort of what's going on. There's the good and the bad and the ugly, and I, I disclose it all. So uh, the story is pretty wild in some parts. It's, uh, you know, there's rehabs and there's wild people in there and, and there's ups and downs, but the story ends good, and I think we all need a happy ending, and at least during these times right now, at least a positive thing, and that's what I'm trying to get out there. Is that, and that's uh, you, yeah, and you've done that. I mean, we have to say goodbye, but you did. I, I would, you know, your book is honest and it's intimate, and that's why it's so compelling. So, tell my, I'm telling my audience, get out there and buy it. Uh, great talking to you today, Stephen Thank Mellons. you very much, Catherine. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 